The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Kusama, Louis Vuitton and the monumental marriage between art and luxury. Plus, US artist Michael Rakowitz's proposal to give his fourth plinth sculpture to take modern and for an ancient sculpture's return to Iraq. Plus, the artist Rosie Martin at the new Centre for British Photography. As robotic figures of the Japanese artist Yayoi Kusama appear in the windows of Louis Vuitton stores in New York, London and Tokyo, I talked to Federica Carlotto, a specialist in art and luxury, about the latest collaboration between Kusama and the LVMH brand and what it tells us about what the former creative director of Louis Vuitton, Mark Jacobs, called the monumental marriage between art and commerce. Also this week, I speak to the artist Michael Rakowitz. He hopes to give a public sculpture he made for Trafalgar Square in London to take modern and an Iraqi institution and tells me how it prompted Iraq to request the return of one of the ancient Assyrian sculptures that inspired Rakowitz's work from the British Museum to its country of origin. And this episode's work of the week is I Didn't Put Myself Down for Sainthood, a work by Rosie Martin in collaboration with Verity Wellstead that is a key piece in the opening displays of the new Centre for British Photography in London. I speak to James Hyman, the art dealer, collector and co-founder of the Centre, about the work. Before all that, why not take advantage of our latest subscription offer? You can save up to 40% on a digital subscription in our January sale. Go to theartnewspaper.com, click subscribe and enter the code JWEB23. That's J-W-E-B-23. Do also subscribe to this podcast and our sister podcast, A Brush With, wherever you're listening and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, earlier this month, the latest collaboration between Yayo Kusama and Louis Vuitton instantly went viral as robots of the artist painting her famous polka dots appeared in the windows of LV stores first in New York, then in London and Tokyo. Huge multicoloured dots now also cover the exterior of the Harrods store in London. The second partnership between the Japanese artist and luxury goods group consists of more than 450 pieces, including bags, fragrances and sneakers. As LV's publicity puts it, celebrating art, audacity and craftsmanship, Kusama's painted dots, metal dots, infinity dots and psychedelic flowers enliven the universe of Louis Vuitton. But why does art have such an allure for mega brands and what are the rewards, other than the obvious commercial ones, for artists? I spoke to Federica Carlotto, the programme director of the MA in Luxury Business at the Sotheby's Institute and founder of Salt Cultural Intelligence about this latest meeting of art and luxury. Federica, I wanted to ask you first about Kusama and Louis Vuitton. It's an ongoing collaboration, but it seems to me it's reached a new level with this latest collaboration. Yes, indeed. I think there has been an evolution, if you want to speak more generally, in the way the collaboration is being structured. Because in the past, if we go even before Kusama, there was a string of artists who were called to collaborate, Stephen Sprouse, uh, and then Richard Prince, and then Murakami, and then Yayoi Kusama. And in those instances, I think the main focus was the product it was an announcement of the product that then you will eventually find in the stores. With this, we are at a different level because the activations are so varied and they touch upon so many different levels of uh, our lives, actually, without us being maybe customers of Louis Vuitton. So if we think, of course, you have the store revamped, of course, you have new uniforms being created for the sales associates. But then other than that, you have a takeover of the landmarks of the major cities in the world. So think about Harrods now dotted and with the gigantic robot. Think about Tokyo, even the Tokyo Tower, uh, which is a landmark in the city, has been kind of dotted out. And then Milan, Piazza San Babila, with the pumpkins of uh, Yayoi Kusama. So let's think about, uh, again, uh, two digital rooms that have been created. So in a way, 
we are not talking about a sort of marketing operations to promote the products of Louis Vuitton. We are talking about something that is bigger. And so we need to start thinking about the audiences of this collaboration. I'm really interested in that. So tell me that it's not necessarily about generating customers. It's about something much bigger than that. It's bigger than that. It's generating awareness and it's being present in our lives. And I think that there is a deep transformation in the role that luxury brands are somehow experiencing. And the transformation is towards becoming sort of cultural agencies, cultural activators uh, in our society. And so in that respect, I see these collaborations actually as a cultural product that is generated, created for us as individuals to engage with art, with the spectacle in a very different way. Right. And does it need artists to do that in the sense that can it do the same through other media? Can it do the same through, for instance, film or other art forms? Or does visual art have a particular kind of language which can be used by companies like LV to kind of push their products or push their identity to a whole new level? I think that art here needs to be kind of intended generally. Whatever catches our eyes, whatever catches our attention, that's very important now. And in a way, visual artists are somehow interesting because they have their own brand. And so in a way, they are recognizable. Uh, they can be linked to other activities because if you see now the timing also this um, collaboration are activated, you will see that this happens usually aside a major exhibition happening uh, somewhere. I'm thinking about the group LVMH. Uh, sponsoring Yayoi Kusama, kind of retrieving a collaboration that they did on the WebClick All Around Dam 2012, and aside a major exhibition in Washington. So it's a way also of leveraging culture in a more formal way uh, through museum exhibition as well. So generate also visitors there. So I think that Visual artists are somehow a good hook to kind of extend uh, somehow the discourse about this collaboration further. When Kusama first emerged, she was very much an avant-garde artist, an artist who was operating in all sorts of spheres relating to minimalism, for instance, and then to performance art and radical painting and so on. Is that sort of radical nature something that the brands are anxious to grab hold of in some way? I would say yes. Now scholars talk about the attention economy, right? Something that can actually catch our eyes. We are in an overload of facts, visuals, content that we scroll down <laughs> on our social media. And we need something that makes us stop just for a few moments. And so in a way, if you go radical, if you go with something that is very colorful, for instance, then it's something that will create visually an impact on you. And if we look, I, I go back to the first collaborations because those collaborations were under um, somehow the patronage in a way or the sponsorship of Marc Jacobs who was one of the first, I think, to think about this collaboration in a very new way. And the first collaboration he did was with Steven Sprouse, who reinvented the logo of Louis Vuitton with graffiti, kind of bringing the traditional Louis Vuitton image onto the streets, basically. Tell me about Mark Jacobs, because it was him who coined that very famous phrase about the monumental marriage of art and commerce, which was actually connected much more to Murakami. And it seems to me that Murakami is a really interesting figure in this regard in terms of agenda setting. There was, of course, that exhibition that he had at Mocha in Los Angeles in 2007, which actually had a boutique of Louis Vuitton store within the show, which was actively selling their wares. So in a way, Jacobs needed a kind of willing collaborator in Murakami. And again, LV has found it with Kusama. You know, there was pictures of her outside the store in Tokyo, clearly enjoying it, posted by her gallery, for instance. So there's a sense in which you need a very, very kind of active engagement from the artist, a real buy-in to make this go as stratospheric as it has gone, right? Yeah, 
Yes, I think Mark Jacobs is a very important figure because we find in him, on the one hand, a genuine interest towards the art. And this is something that in history, if we look back, every fashion designer, every creative somehow takes inspiration from the art world. That's common, that's normal in a way. But Mark Jacobs was also hired by Louis Vuitton in a moment where Louis Vuitton was moving from being the handbags, trunks brand into a global fashion brand. And so he was called to design, for instance, the ready-to-wear collection. And in the same years, he comes with the menswear collection. And in between, we have all this engagement with the artists. So I think with Marc Jacobs, we have perfectly the kind of marriage between the mindset of an artist, a creator, plus the mindset of a marketeer. And so when you start producing lines, products, then in a way you are diffusing your brand. You don't want to dilute it. And this is why and how artists come to reinforce the perceived uniqueness of products. And so you approach artists who do not have this rigid vision about what art should be and where art should be displayed and what support you should use. But they are happy, for instance, to use a canvas bag. And the same Murakami you mentioned when that exhibition was proposed with the boutique inside, the idea was actually that the act of buying from Murakami was a performance. There is also, in those years, there is also a reflection on consumption. Consumption becomes an object of reflection. Absolutely. I mean, one of the interesting things I think about this is to think about attitudes to art and luxury in different parts of the world. And one of the things that's true of Mikami, and it's been often written about, is is that he's from Japan. And in Japan, there is not the same kind of hierarchy between apparently high forms of culture and low forms of culture. So art and commerce can sit more easily together. Is that your perception? I know you studied Japan a lot. Yes, I've lived in Japan for five years. I got my PhD there. And so... I agree with that. So in Japan, it's quite common in a way to host exhibition in big department stores. I think this comes down to the fact that in non-Western countries, there is no such a distinction or there is no kind of expectation of where art should be, what art should be, Uh, but it's an expression. And going also back to the idea of commercial and art, Murakami is somehow its expression of a specific element of the Japanese culture, which is kawaii, right? The cuteness, which also reminds of the manga, the anime culture, with this kind of very uh, colorful, very simplified shapes. And in a way, again, that collaboration, I think, projected Louis Vuitton in the stratosphere (laughs) in terms of consumption, in terms of uh, brand awareness, because... For the Japanese audience, having the Louis Vuitton bag was actually not a luxury. It was a sort of must if you wanted to belong to the middle class. And the Japanese society at the time was very much about fitting in the middle class. You don't want to emerge. You don't want to be more than the others. And the Louis Vuitton bag was the staple item for the office ladies. So in a way, you create a collaboration that culturally speaking, in terms of art form, is very much speaking to the Japanese audience, speaking their language with an artist very much open on the way art should be communicated. And uh, the rest is history. Absolutely. Tell me what you think about who gains the most from this, because I'm really interested in the way that, for instance, you see comments on Instagram from people saying, oh, Kusama's really sold out now. I used to love her work. But then you also have people saying, I love everything she does. This is so fantastic. This is a natural progression of the work. There's such a debate about the perceptions of collaborations like this. Who do you think gains the most? Is it a quid pro quo? Is it a fair engagement? I think the fairness is decided by the parties. I see it as a collaboration between two brands. When we talk about the artist, I'm thinking, for instance, about Kusama. Is it her or is it her studio? Is it her manager? So I think from my perspective, I want to see this as a sort of agreement between two parties. Of course, 
Kusama has been working with LVMH for such a long time. The same, Olafur Eliasson. So in a way, you are part of a bigger project besides, you know, the individual collaboration. And if this actually allows you to touch and to communicate with people on a wider level, and if this is part of your strategy as an artist and as a branded artist, then it's fine. For the luxury brands, definitely, as I said before, uh, we need to consider big luxury brands now as uh, creative agencies. And so for them, this is not even selling more bags. This is actually stepping into cultural creation, creating the kind of debates that you mentioned, I think is the next step for them. I wanted to also explore the point about audiences a bit more, because one of the things that we've been noting in terms of the art market and so on is that there is a new kind of collector who seems to be engaging with art on the same level as luxury brands, for instance. Is it partly about that? Actually, a lot of the resistance to this is coming from people who want a culture which is consumed in a fairly traditional way to a certain degree and actually there are millennials and gen z people who are actually saying no i want to consume my culture in different ways through different media and with different levels of hierarchy i guess again this comes down in the way we consume things so i usually invite people to think what we do when we open our instagram account and we see content that is created by our friends and family as well as celebrities as well as ads so there is no formal distinction in the content. It's one after the other. In the same way, we walk down the street and we can appreciate a painting in a gallery and then the next store is a boutique or is a luxury store. So, and then we can go to an exhibition and then in certain museums, actually, it's quite interesting, the store, because they have a um, special collection or special merchandising. So... Do you go to the gallery because you're interested in the exhibition or also because you want to check what do they have in terms of merchandising? Uh, the reality is that our consumption is hybrid. And so I understand the debate, but in a way, the reality is that our consumption blends to world. And so there might be different audiences, for instance, in a way, I think maybe that this is a more realistic way of putting it. But I totally see the point of younger generations because this is the world they're living in. Let's talk about the history. You mentioned it a couple of times. Of course, we had collaborations like Salvador Dali with Schiaparelli and so on. Is there anything tangibly different now to these kind of collaborations other than the fact that we're living in a modern world with modern media? Is it basically the same? It's a collaboration between minds, if you like. You're totally right about the context. I think the context plays such a big difference. I think at the time of Schiaparelli, I'm thinking about Chanel as well in the same years. She was commissioned, actually, by the Diamond Association to create a diamond collection in 1932. And she called Polly Rib and Jean Cocteau because they were part of the same cultural sphere. I think that in those cases, it was more genuine, meaning informal. You are my friend. We go to Antibes together and spend the holiday. Can you help me with this? Right. Well, now, of course, the layers are so much more complex. And in order to organize collaborations or a drop, because it's just a drop <laughs> between Vuitton and Kusama, it's a more structured collaboration. It's much more complex because, of course, we're talking about Vuitton and Yayoi Kusama. It, it makes me think you mentioned Cocteau there. And actually, it's, it makes me think about the kind of artists that are engaging in this kind of territory, because of course, he was a great polymath. And I suppose that's, that's what the brands need is they need an artist who's prepared to expand, prepared to work in different fields, prepared to find poetry and beauty in a commercial transaction fundamentally. Yes, but if we also see, we need to see the evolution of the creative directors as well, because we are having a generation of uh, creative directors, Alessandro Michele, Kim Jones, uh, Jonathan Anderson, for instance, the late Virgil Abloh. You cannot define them just fashion creators. Polymath, I think, is the term you use, and I think it applies very well to them. So 
they are out there looking for inspiration, looking for new things to propose, looking for collaboration where, by the way, they're not just taking artists, they offer their genius or their uh, mind and creativity as well to others. I'm thinking Jonathan Anderson working with Ruinar for the Ruinar 1729. It's a pop-up hotel, by the way, one week where Jonathan Anderson actually did the interiors, including pieces of his collection and his own pieces. So we have also creative directors who are not just looking for the next garment, the next item to sell. They're actually looking to contribute to a sort of cultural dialogue with other brands, with other institutions. So I think that we need to see the changes that are happening within the art world, with artists becoming more and more conscious about the management of their brands, the change in the luxury industry. So from companies looking to sell products into companies creating cultural debates, and then also who are the people who are running the show in these companies. And so creative directors that are hyphenated human beings. Federica, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. You can read more about this story and a recent interview with Kusama at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. Coming up, Michael Rakowitz on his gift to take modern and Iraq's request for the return of an Assyrian sculpture from the British Museum and James Hyman on Rosie Martin at the Centre for British Photography. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. The heirs of Karl and Rosie Adler, Jewish art collectors who fled Germany in 1938 to escape the Nazis, are seeking the return of Pablo Picasso's blue period painting Woman Ironing, or La Repasseuse, of 1904, which they claim in a lawsuit filed last week is in the wrongful possession of the Solomon R. Guggenheim Foundation. In their claim, eight Adler heirs call for the painting's return or compensation commensurate with its current market value of between $100 and $200 million. Amid the Nazis' systematic persecution, the Adlers, who were based in Baden-Baden, were forced to sell what they could to obtain cash, and according to the lawsuit, sold the Picasso painting to the dealer Justin K. Tannhauser for nearly 7,000 Swiss francs, or about $1,500, in October 1938, though it was worth considerably more. It remained in Tannhauser's personal collection before it was gifted to the Guggenheim on his death in 1976. A row over free speech in relation to images of the Prophet Muhammad at the Hamline University in St Paul, Minnesota in the US has led the university's academic staff to demand the resignation of its president. A former adjunct professor of art history at the school, Erica lopez Prater, was dismissed after she showed two historic depictions of the Prophet, prompting leading Islamic scholars as well as independent groups concerned with censorship in academia to express concern over free speech. Prater is now suing the university for religious discrimination and defamation. Hamline academic staff voted in favour of the president, Fainese Muller, tendering her resignation immediately and stated that they no longer have faith in her ability to lead the university forward. But an anonymous letter from Muslim students at the university has expressed their hurt that, quote, faculty members don't care much for us. The filmmaker John Acomfra has been confirmed as the artist who will occupy the British Pavilion at the next Venice Biennale in 2024. Acomfra began as a member of the hugely influential Black Audio Film Collective, with whom he made the seminal documentary film Handsworth Songs in 1986. He's since gone on to make works principally for galleries, including an epic series of multi-screen installations on the theme of climate change and colonialism. You can hear a recent interview with him on our sister podcast, Brushwith. It was also confirmed this week that Canada Canada's representative of the world's longest established biennial will be Kapwani Kiwanga, who featured in last year's international exhibition at the Venice Biennale. Among the other notable artists confirmed so far is Julien Creuset in the French Pavilion. The Biennale is scheduled to begin on the 20th of April 2024, and you can keep up to date on all the news about Venice's national pavilions and the main exhibition, and read more on all these stories on the website or the app. We'll be back after this.
The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. In a verdant West Country landscape stood an English country house with a difference. This February, Christie's presents an opulent aesthetic, an important private collection from an English country house. Serving as a rural retreat from city life where outdoor pursuits were enjoyed and friends entertained, its interior was teeming with treasures. Set against a backdrop of dramatic colours, the arrangement of gilded furniture, paintings and works of art created a luxurious interior with rich patterns adding a theatrical flourish. Christie's invites you to journey inside the country house's opulent interior at their London sale room from the 3rd to the 8th of February with the auction taking place on the 9th. Entry is free and open to all and you're encouraged to visit and surround yourself with the most exquisite examples of craftsmanship from the 18th and 19th centuries. Find out more at christie's.com. Welcome back. Now, in 2018, Michael Rakowitz unveiled his sculpture The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist on the Fourth Plinth, the site for contemporary sculpture in Trafalgar Square in London. The Chicago-based artist now hopes that the sculpture, based on the ancient Assyrian hybrid figures called Lamassu, could be shared between Tate Modern and an institution in Iraq. But as part of the deal, the Iraqis have requested that the British Museum should return one of the two Assyrian Lamassu sculptures in its collection that were discovered in Nineveh by the Victorian archaeologist Sir Austin Henry Layard. It's the latest in a host of debates about the provenance of works in European and North American museums, but in this case suggests a more creative solution to this growing problem. I spoke to Michael Rakowitz to find out more. Michael, before we talk specifically about what's happening with your sculpture, can you remind us about the Lamassu? What were they? The Lamassu were protective deities in Assyria that were often carved from gypsum. They were these creatures that were kind of like a chimera that uh, had a human head, the wings of an eagle, uh, the body of a bull or a lion, and they stood sentry at the thresholds of entrances to palaces and entrances to cities, and it was meant to be a kind of uh, almost like a, a sentry that was providing protection. Uh, for the citizens and for the king. Right. And interestingly, you mentioned both lions and bulls there. And for example, the Metropolitan Museum of Art has two. One is a winged lion and one is a winged bull. So you get the sense, you know, in Western collections, these are very prominent and they have multiple examples, for instance. Exactly. One of the things that one can do in looking at the ways in which a lot of these antiquities have been excavated and subsequently partaged around the world is that uh, there's often a kind of inequity in the numbers of what has remained and what has gone elsewhere. So when Daesh, ISIS, uh, the Islamic State, had destroyed the Northwest Palace at Nimrud, for example, those large relief panels that you can find in places like the British Museum and also the Metropolitan Museum of Art, there were 200 that had remained in situ in Iraq of the 600 that were found. So that meant that 400 had gone to collections in the global north and the west. Right. And with your project, The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist, for the Fourth Plinth, it was was part of an ongoing project. You created a Lamassu, but it wasn't just recreated in stone. It wasn't a pastiche, as we've seen recreated elsewhere. You wanted to make this about Iraq today as well as Iraq's history, right? Precisely. The project, uh, without getting into all the granular details of how it emerged and whatever else, was really based on using objects, using materials that were themselves unable to tell me where they were from. They were unable to disclose their provenance. So the trigger for all of these projects was finding out that a can of date syrup that I bought for my mother that said product of Lebanon was actually product of Iraq. But because of the years of sanctions and then the subsequent difficulty of getting anything outside of Iraq into a global kind of export foodway was really kind of indicative of the fact that the archaeological artifact holds its value because it can tell you where it's from. And then these objects were almost too terrified to tell me where they were from. And so when I thought about these artifacts that were looted or in the aftermath of the war destroyed, coming back, um, I thought this was the skin they should wear um, if they were to haunt. 
And so the Lama Su that was on the fourth plinth uh, was a life-size reappearance of the one that had stood at the Nurgle Gate in Nineveh and been destroyed in 2015. It was made from 10,500 cans of Iraqi date syrup. And did your discussions begin with the tape whilst it was still on the plinth? Yes, it was in the summer of 2019 that I received a, a lovely email from the museum saying that they were interested in being the custodian for the work to preserve its legacy. And so this was very interesting to me that at that point, there weren't many people who had come up and even asked about what the life was going to be of the work afterwards. And my own fantasy was that this was something that if the Iraqi people would accept it, that I would give to Iraq afterwards. And it would, inshallah, you know, stand sentry at the Nurgle Gate in Nineveh where the original one stood. But as I had conversations with people in Iraq and some of them in government institutions, they mentioned that, you know, for them, the Lamasu was very important that it was outside in the diaspora and that I had made this out of diasporic objects, that the date syrup in and of itself was the date syrup that couldn't say that it was from Iraq. And they said that's actually the experience of the Iraqi immigrant, you know, who's too terrified to tell you where they're from sometimes. And so I started to listen even more closely and they said, if something were to come back, it should be one of the originals. So if you give us this work, it almost lets the British off the hook. And so as I thought more and more about the offer from the Tate Modern, and I thought about it being a donation, I received an email back that was really, again, very warm and generous, but also framed what I was going to do as being a gift to the nation, that the Tate as a kind of government institution, this will be considered a gift to Great Britain. And so that hit me in a pretty profound way. And so I started to think, well, if I'm giving a gift to the nation, then I would like to somehow have it tied to a gift that the nation of Great Britain might make to another. What I started to do was to speak with people also at the British Museum and to find out if they would be willing to consider this, to consider this kind of triangular agreement. When I say triangular, I mean the agreement that I have with the Tate Modern is that it share custody of my Lamassu with an institution in Iraq that is still to be determined. And this would keep alive the questions and the tensions and the pressures of where an artwork belongs and also who belongs to an artwork. It's also literally a diasporic object with wings that can fly between two places, which mirrors the situation of a lot of Iraqis who exist in the diaspora, including Assyrians, who are the descendants of the people who made these works, who are finding it increasingly difficult to stay. And so I was very interested in, in that being a kind of continuation of the sculpting of the work, that the pressures of those situations actually continue to shape it. And then I went to the British Museum and I told them, that this was being considered a gift to the nation and would they, as a government institution, also consider giving a Lamassu to Iraq. That London now had one Lamassu too many with the acquisition of my work and it was time for one of the originals to go back. And you can guess the kind of polite but very clear response that I got that it was an institution that is doing work with Iraqis on the ground and in Iraq itself on excavation sites, and then worked with Facta Marte and I guess some other organizations who have come in and done 3D scans of items like the Lamassu and have sent exacting replicas of those, even with, you know, down to the patina. If you watch the video of how they made these, it's actually quite amazing. And it looks exactly like the ones that are in the museum. And I thought to myself, this is pathological. Where is the dignity of sending these hollow husks, you know, look exactly like the ones in the British Museum, to the University of Mosul? And if they, they look so convincing, why not hold on to the copies and send the originals back? Because that, for me, is an act of solidarity. We can get entangled in these conversations about whether or not something has what they call immaculate provenance. You know, meaning that things were acquired 
in the right ways. It's part of what the arguments are around, I think, the Parthenon marbles, that, you know, that there was a fair agreement. But those fair agreements at the time were based on the laws of society. And those laws of society, you know, we know what those laws of society were around the world in the 1700s, the 1800s. And, and even now, where these artifacts in the UK are protected by a 1963 law that says that things don't go back. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, laws are there and to be considered. And there are certain laws of society that we've known that, are, that need abolition. And so those kinds of things for me are part of the discussion. And so it was quite clearly swatted away as a proposition, but it is the kind of thing that I will continue to ask, you know, that it will be something that I return to over and over. And that the Tate Modern, you know, has this object where they've made this incredible agreement of reciprocity. And also informally, they were sympathetic to my desire to continue to exert pressure on the British Museum to return one of those objects. And when you have people in the museum world who are willing to kind of like commit to having those discussions and to exerting those pressures, that starts to change uh, the terrain a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, and that's something I wanted to pick up on with you, Michael, because apart from anything else, I mean, one of the things that I know is that you studied with Christoph Vodichko, mm-hmm. who is a hugely influential figure in terms of how we might imagine a new kind of monumentalism. And it seems to me that one of the interesting things about this whole area is how can we respond imaginatively to this issue? The discussions are so often reduced to who owns what and these, as you say, agreements made in times when there were extraordinary different pressures. So one of the ways it seems to me that this is a radical proposal it shouldn't feel that radical, but it is, is to say, let's put the artist at the heart of this. Let's place creative figures, people producing objects at the heart of this and begin a new kind of discussion. Does it feel like that to you or does it feel much more directly involved with a very personal engagement with a particular object and places? Oh, I think that your analysis of it is very real. And I think that, you know, these kinds of discussions have to happen. And there are many people who have been pushing for these discussions for centuries. And so the restitution and repatriation discussion is not something that's new. In fact, this agreement isn't new. I mean, I've had this agreement on the books with the Tate Modern since August of 2020, and it was only because a journalist from The Guardian was doing a piece on where the fourth plinth sculptures ended up that it's become this thing where I have to say the press is getting it wronger and wronger, you know, when the more it gets published, which is quite something. But it is the sort of thing where I think one of those aspects that you bring up about Wodichko is he believes in fearless listening to enable fearless speaking. And so I think that part of what has been happening is as we've entered into this moment where we are kind of understanding that those things in our museums help and enable some really awful power dynamics that are still very much in the air to exist and to actually harm people and to keep a status quo that's untenable somewhere else, then I I think that, that we're starting to kind of see that these objects are not just residing only in the symbolic realm, that they are existing, and we start to see that symbols are important. They They actually do have meaning. And I think that those kinds of public discourse are really important. You know, but the one thing I do want to say is that it's not just about the discourse. We've been having this discourse for a long time. You know, I tracked just how long this conversation about the Parthenon marbles has gone on. You know, I have no idea what the solution will be, but, you know, it does have to culminate in some kind of action. You know, one of the things that I do want to say also is I don't necessarily want to lead these discussions. I have an object. I have an object that actually needed to go somewhere. Okay, so one of the things was, you know, I needed to find either it's going to disappear and be disassembled and and tossed, or, you know, is it possible for it to have another life? I was approached by an institution that was interested in serving as a custodian. The desire was to then say, okay, well, here's a Lamassu that's been made in 2018 A.D., that's referencing a Lamassu that was made in 700 BCE. 
you know, I don't know the name of the sculptor or the sculptors who made the original. I wish I did, you know, but in this case, we've all been looking at this on the fourth plinth for two years. I call it a ghost. I never call these recreations or reconstructions. We've all been looking at the same ghost, maybe for the first time in human history. And so the question is, where should it go? I know the Iraqis don't need to be haunted by a ghost. I know it's us. It's me in the U.S. It's the U.K. And so it made sense that it stay. So what are the terms for it to stay? Let's attach it to a larger discussion. You know, so it is about the proposition creating a kind of discourse that hopefully leads to action. But in the end, no, it's not about me. It's not about the work necessarily. You know, but it is as well. It really is like, you know, going back to what I said very simply, London now has an extra llama suit. If the British Museum and the other museums want to say that they acquired their llama suit fairly, fine. But you say you have a relationship with these people. You say that you're helping with rebuilding. You've just seen how many llama suit have been destroyed and how many people have perished alongside these archaeological sites. Those people... Their lives cannot be 3D printed and reappeared. And so the proper thing to do is to actually show a sign of standing with and being in solidarity. I wanted to ask you, in a way I'm playing devil's advocate here, but because you had such a formative experience at the British Museum, I think there are people who would defend the kind of universal museum model Mm -hmm. and say well you're a perfect example of why we need universal museums because you as a child went to the british museum and you saw works from your ancestral lands as it were Mm -hmm. your family coming from uh, as iraqi jews coming to london there you are in the british museum and you experience your heritage there and that is why in a diasporic world we need universal museums which speak to communities from across the world because that is the nature of the world today how would you respond to that well my response to that is i think that we're not looking at a world where there isn't going to be an encyclopedic museum we're looking at a world where those things are not going to disappear those exist but let's also look at where those encyclopedic museums exist for me i think the cost of what an encyclopedic museum entails what the cost is is something that again is tied in myriad ways as to why there is a diaspora you know not that there shouldn't be you know these constant exchanges and people should be able to live wherever they want to live without displacing other people i've even heard the argument of course that uh well thank god they're here because isis would have destroyed them well what were the conditions that led to the creation of isis You know, like these for me are, again, like this is the pathology of the conversation that always brings it back to this root of a certain kind of colonial largesse, which traffics in racism and these uneven power dynamics. You know, those excavations in the mid-1800s, there were some mutualities and cooperations, and those things shouldn't be discarded nor diminished. The research that's been done on these things should not be diminished. Um, We've learned a lot from them. However, my family leaving Iraq has a lot to do with foreign intervention. It has a lot to do with British colonialism. It has a lot to do also with uh, the German embassy buying an Arabic newspaper in Baghdad and being able to transmit Hitler's speeches. You know, so you talk about them as an ancestral lands. You know, my mother's ancestral land became a battleground of colonialist powers. You know, so if you want to talk about the diaspora, we have to look at why there are diasporas. But at the same time, the thought experiment here is that let's imagine the Encyclopedic Museum as something that we renew. But we renew it as something that's about the mutual curiosity of the citizens of the world in terms of where they are. And let's imagine that there's an encyclopedic museum in Baghdad that has Mesopotamian artifacts and centers and and elevates all the different people who live there and um, and their their cultural patrimony. And let's imagine that it expands and includes American artifacts and British artifacts. And so what I don't want to do 
is what the British Museum and other universal institutions tend to do, which is to ventriloquize objects. So I don't want to ventriloquize people in Iraq, you know, who are who are working on this. And I don't want to speak for them because who knows, you know, if they come to the table and the lyre of Ur, the harp that's in the British Museum, is up for discussion, I don't want to eradicate the possibility that someone in Iraq might say, no, you keep that musical instrument, give us John Lennon's first guitar, you know? As an artist, I think about these things, they may be unorthodox to say, but they open up the possibility of being surprised and for things to not only rest in what is considered to be predictable. So those kinds of things for me would be like the evolution of what we would call an encyclopedic museum, because I don't see many reconstructions of the Liberty Bell in other parts of the world. And I do think that there is a future for a museum that even gives back its originals, but keeps these 3D copies. You know, if those countries of origin give them permission to make a 3D scan and to keep it, there's something that's actually exquisitely interesting about, you know, the British Museum being like a word file and you save a copy of it, you know, and to rename the document with that little dot copy at the end. So I'm thinking about those things in this way. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. You can hear my interview with Michael Rakowitz as he unveiled the sculpture in Trafalgar Square in the episode of this podcast from the 22nd of March 2018. And you can hear Michael talk in depth about his work on an episode of the A Brush With podcast from the 9th of June 2021. Now, it's time for the work of the week. On Thursday, the new Centre for British Photography opened in German Street in London, a stone's throw from galleries in the St James's District and a short walk from the Royal Academy of Arts. It's the brainchild of the collectors James and Claire Hyman, who've amassed an important collection of photography over recent decades. James is also a dealer in British art with a specialism in photographs. Among the opening exhibitions at the centre is Headstrong, Women and Empowerment, and it features a striking work made by Rosie Martin, in collaboration with Verity Wellstead called I Didn't Put Myself Down for Sainthood. I spoke to James Hyman about the work. James, before we talk about the particular image, I'd like to talk a bit about Rosie Martin's concept of reenactment phototherapy, which was actually something she developed with Joe Spence, who is another artist who's very prominent in the early displays of the Centre for British Photography. So tell us about that concept. Yes, well, phototherapy was a way of trying to use photography in a, I suppose, a practical way within therapeutic sessions. And those were sessions that by their nature were done as a partnership, that you would have one person talking about maybe their traumas, about their childhood, and the other person being the listener. And then that would swap round. And so as part of that, what they would be doing, Joe Spence and Rosie Martin, was maybe dressing up performing particular roles it might be as performing as their father or their mother or a childhood issue around eating or gender so it was a way of exploring buried traumas and often with a lot of humor I think that's an important thing to say that although you know it it can seem quite heavy it's uh, also very playful there's a lot of performance and costume absolutely and and in fact some of those works from that early period of working with Joe Spence became quite seminal in terms of their influence and one thinks of them in relation to even things like I don't know Tracy Emin's photographic self-portraiture for instance. Well I think the work of both Rosie Martin and Joe Spence has had a huge impact particularly among uh, younger uh, women in photography. You know very often there are self-portrait based works, performance, issue-driven explorations and there was a book that they did called Putting Ourselves in the Picture. And it's very much the way that these sorts of issues can be uh, expressed through performance, but through the self. And I think that's very relevant right now. 
Absolutely. And the personal as political is also a key factor, isn't it? They were looking at themselves and it was a process of self-awareness, but very much within a socio-political context, and a very sort of charged political context in that time that they were making those original works, wasn't it? It was. I mean, Jo Spence called herself a cultural worker and, you know, she would have described herself as a socialist feminist. And I think the socialist part would have been as important as the feminism. And I think with Rosie Martin, you know, she did very major works, such as a series called Don't Say Cheese, Say Lesbian, that was about sexuality. And, you know, you've got to think that the context for some of those pieces was Clause 28, AIDS, homophobia. It was a very, very charged political time. And it's sometimes hard to kind of remember the resonance of a work when it was made, when it's all sort of extracted out of time and place. Absolutely. And so what we're going to look at now is a work which is a kind of legacy of that early process, but actually almost right up to date. So made in 2018, a work called I Didn't Put Myself Down for Sainthood. This is a collaboration with Verity Wellstead. Do you want to say something about that? Yes. So uh, first of all, on this idea of collaboration, you know, I think historically the art market in particular has a problem with that, that, you know, we like sole authorship. And what's essential to this kind of practice is it's a collaboration. And it is important that the collaborator is, you know, included as part of the credit. It is Rosie Martin in collaboration with Verity Wellstead. What this piece is about, it's a very dramatic, large-scale work. And it derives, as much of Rosie's works and Joe's works, from sessions where perhaps the pictures were only four by six, five by seven inches. You know, they were very small. And uh, back in the day, they were just, you know, commercially printed, sent off to a a chemist, you know, to be uh, (laughs) developed. And so they weren't high art, you know, they were part of a process, a therapeutic process. But what's been exciting for us is to work with Rosie Martin on producing something that is epic. It's one of the first pictures that you see when you walk into the new Centre for British Art. And the format is like an iconostasis. And I'm very interested in that dialogue with earlier languages and earlier iconography. You know, it's a photograph, but what it is really is picking up on the language of saints and uh, angels and, and using that to explore the ambivalence she felt about being a carer for her mother who had multi-infarct dementia. And so you see these incredible white angels and blue saints And they were to reflect the ambivalence, I suppose, that she felt that on the one hand, it was a privilege and it was seen as such by others, you know, to be a carer is a very special relationship. But on the other hand, she did feel resentment that this was something that was impacting her own life. And so I think the angels and the saints are a way of her trying to address that ambivalence. And, you know, we're we're in a very interesting period where there is rightly a great sensitivity about what causes Uh, offence. But in this work, it it is actually a very sort of disturbing thing to start thinking about that a person being cared for doesn't want to feel guilty about the uh, impact that has on the carer. So, you know, one of the things about these sorts of works is the the language may be beautiful, it may be playful, but the issues being addressed are actually very profound and, and sometimes quite disturbing. Absolutely. And she really takes on that sort of history of the structure of uh, religious imagery as well. So it, it very much looks like an altarpiece on the wall, doesn't it? You have It's like a multi-part altarpiece, multi-panels. And as you say, there, there are the two kind of characteristics. On the one hand, there are these saintly images, which clearly evoke the Maria Dolorosa, as they say, in, in a Renaissance period. And then, and then you have these questioning angels. And we're used to angels having a kind of playful quality, aren't we? And, and Putti having a playful quality in religious painting. But here they have a kind of doubting quality or perhaps a a critical quality within the structure. Yes, and it's important to say that this is her performing those roles. And also she's done, you know, quite a lot of work about being an older woman and the ageing process. And I think that's a dimension that also is often not looked at. You know, it, it is very much about her own life experience that we're looking at here. Absolutely. And that self-awareness that was always part of the whole reenactment process is very much clear here, isn't it? And as you say, again, it's asking difficult questions. She, on the one hand, is making the assumption that she would be there for her mother, but she's also questioning why. And I think that's a situation that we know that there is a problem in social care in Britain and, and far beyond Britain right now. So it seems to me, again, she's absolutely tapping in to this personal political dialogue. I think that's right. And, you know, I think what's so moving about her work and what we've really 
been stimulated by is seeing the early work and the way it relates to what's happening now. That, it, as we've said before, it has a resonance from the 1980s and that politically charged time, but has a new level of meaning now. And particularly after the last couple of years of the pandemic, these issues around care, whether it's you know within the, the home, whether it's wider and the responsibilities of society, are really very acute. Can you say something about how the images are designed, if you like? So what are the independent roles of Rosie Martin and Verity Wellstead? I mean, I, I think with the kind of collaborative practice that Rosie pioneered with Joe Spence, how they've tended to conceive it in terms of credit and, and who did what, is the person appearing in the work has that kind of agency that they have performed and they have directed and the in collaboration with is an acknowledgement of the person who took the photographs. So the session would have explored ideas together, but the realization has a particular role for each of them. So my assumption is that, you know, Verity was the one behind the camera in sessions that they sort of explored together. And obviously this was something that Rosie wanted to explore because it was particularly acute and meaningful in her own life. Yeah, and this forms part of a show that where you've worked with Fast Forward, which is an organisation which is specifically dealing with women in photography. Can you say something about that? Yes, at the centre, it was very important to us that the opening shows weren't just an opportunity to showcase our collection. And we do that with a show called The English at Home, which is historical, but was also a chance to make a statement about collaboration. So it's not just that Rosie and Verity work together on an individual piece, but it was very important to us. We've given over the main space for our opening show to an organisation that we've supported for a long time that is advocacy for better representation of women in uh, photography. And Anna Fox and her team at Fast Forward have curated a show of about a dozen photographers. And they're all women who use self-portraiture to address various issues. And it's very wide ranging in terms of the media used, whether it's video or, you know, old television screens, whether it's photographic, whether it's multi-part, but it's genuinely diverse in medium. But also when you're looking at who is in that show, for us, this is a big signal about what we see as our role and what we see as important about what's happening in this country, that this isn't a centre for British photography, meaning that we're scrutinizing people's passports it's that we're celebrating what's happening in this country and so it's a really powerful statement i think about diversity and about empowering others that we haven't been the curators of that show it's really clear when you enter the space that while you do have greatest hits as you say in your collection display particularly downstairs you've got bill brandt there's martin parr there there's there's richard billingham works that are hugely well known it seems to me that it sets a sort of marker for what you might do in the future by saying we're going to start by introducing names to many members of the public will not know a lot of these photographers in in the fast forward display well i think it's about introducing people they don't know and maybe people are seduced by coming to see bill brandt and martin parr and others and then they'll have this whole other exhibition we're interested in saying well look there is this story of british photography that may equate it with a documentary tradition but then look at all these other stories look at all these other strands this interesting practice you know look at what these women are doing look at the diversity of it for me we use the title for the historical show the english at home I'm very aware of the fact that that is the the title of the first book by Bill Brandt, who is seen as the quintessential British photographer of the 20th century. Well, he only came into this country, you know, in his 20s. He was born in Germany. And in the introduction to the English at home, Raymond Mortimer says he's like an anthropologist, you know, and that he saw the English as this rather strange culture. You know, he was exploring it as an outsider. And so even in that show that you could say is the greatest hits in a more traditional view of British photography, I like the fact that there are these other stories going on and that, you know, it's not quite as straightforward as as we look at. And, you know, in my work over the years as an art historian, I've been fascinated by the role played by people who aren't from this country and the contributions made by immigrant or first generation or whatever it is, people with heritages that are different. School of London, and you look at Lucian Freud and... Frank Auerbach and Leon Kossoff, who are now very much in the mainstream of 20th century British painting. Well, you know, that was an introduction to that culture, which at the beginning was not a comfortable one. 
or you look at Picture Post magazine, the quintessential British publication of the mid-20th century, set up by people who'd come from Europe and who'd taken aesthetics from European journals. But that became seen as the most important sort of British publication. So I'm very interested in the contributions made by those who have come from outside. And I think we're mindful also now that we move from being private collectors to setting up a public institution, that what we want to do is to reflect the different voices in this country. And, you know, we're trying to, for example, broaden and diversify our trustees, our advisors, to have people come and shape our program and, in a way, give up power or cede some of the power that we might be perceived to have. And that's why, to me, having the show that Rosie Martin's in is so important. This is our opening show, and we've given it to somebody else to curate. Well, James, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Headstrong, Women and Empowerment is at the Centre for British Photography in London until the 23rd of April. Admission for all the shows at the Centre is free. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Federica, Michael and James. Thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.